Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. We now continue with John Stott and the series, Four Portraits of Christ. Today's part three features the Gospel of Luke. The background to our study during these Sunday nights, as I mentioned before, is the many Jesuses who are on offer in the world today. I won't go into them again, but just as a little introduction, if you've not been last uh, two Sunday nights, we've thought of Jesus the clown, Jesus the ascetic, Jesus the superstar, Jesus the capitalist, Jesus the socialist, Jesus the revolutionary, and a whole list of different Jesuses. Attempted reconstructions, fan fantasy reconstructions of Jesus. From these, we turn aside to the authentic Jesus of the New Testament witness, the fourfold portrait of Jesus that were given by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, presents Jesus as the Christ of Scripture, the fulfillment of many centuries of Old Testament expectation. Mark, a topic last Sunday night, presents Jesus as the suffering servant at the center of whose life was the cross, which therefore becomes the center of our lives if we are true followers of his. Now, tonight, we come to Luke. Luke presents Jesus as the Savior of the world. The Savior reaching out in saving compassion to everybody, whatever their race, nation, rank, age, sex, or anything else. Now, before we develop this marvelous theme of Luke's, let's take a look at Luke himself. You know, don't you, that Luke is the only Gentile contributor to the New Testament. All the other authors were Jews. By profession, he was a doctor. Our dear friend Luke the doctor, Paul calls him in his letter to the Colossians. So that means, as medical students here will agree, that he was a well-educated person, a man of culture, as you can tell from the well-polished Greek in which he wrote. He was also a well-traveled man, so that, perhaps you know this little detail, the other evangelists all refer to the Sea of Galilee. But Lucas traveled on the real sea, the Mediterranean, so he refers to it as a puddle. <laughs> At least the word actually means a lake or a pond. But it isn't a sea as far as he is concerned. He is a man of wide horizons and broad sympathies. And as a historian, he sets the story of Jesus against the background of the Roman emperors and their subordinate rulers. According to tradition, Luke was an artist. Whether that is true or not, he is certainly an artist in words. Renan, 
the 19th century liberal French theologian, said that Luke's gospel is the most beautiful book that has ever been written. And it is a very beautiful story. And since he wrote a two-volume work on the origins of Christianity, he's left behind him more material than the other evangelists from which to deduce what his major emphasis was. Now, all that information, and it's really a little minimal, but all that information about Luke is very important for our understanding of his message. Because in the process of inspiration, if you believe as I do in the inspiration of the Bible, think with me about what is meant by the process of inspiration. In it, the Holy Spirit did not obliterate the personality of the human authors. He did the opposite. The Holy Spirit patiently fashioned and prepared the personality, the temperament, the background, the education, the upbringing, the experience of each biblical author in order to convey through each of them a distinctive and appropriate truth. It is therefore not an accident that Matthew, the most Jewish of the Gospel writers, presents Jesus as the Messiah of the Jews and of the Old Testament Scripture. Nor is it as an, a an accident that Luke, the only Gentile contributor to the New Testament, presents Jesus not as the Messiah of the Jews, but as the Savior of the world. It's a wonderful theme. I hope it excites you tonight as much as it does me. So it's time to look at a text. I wonder if you'd mind opening your Bible in the New Testament at the Gospel of Luke chapter 3, and our text is verse 6. It's a good text because it's unique. It doesn't come in the other evangelists, that's why I've chosen it. Here it is, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. All flesh, all humankind will see the salvation of God. <clears throat> now, it's in a context about John the Baptist. All four evangelists refer to John the Baptist. They tell of him as the precursor, the forerunner of Jesus of Nazareth. And all four evangelists quote from Isaiah 40, the voice crying in the wilderness, and they recognize in that voice John the Baptist. But only Luke continues the quotation from Isaiah 40 to include this phrase, all flesh will see the salvation of God. It's unique to Luke. And it tells us immediately what his message is. Three things. One, Luke's message is good news of salvation. Well, I know as well, I think, as anybody here, that the word salvation embarrasses some people. And other people say, well, it's meaningless. It belongs to a traditional religious vocabulary long since discarded. 
Well, if you think that, let's ask ourselves what Luke meant when he talked about salvation. According to him, salvation has two component parts. The first is forgiveness. The forgiveness of sins is at the very center of what is meant by salvation. So it's Luke who records the prophecy of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, that he would give them, listen carefully, the knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of our sins. So you see in that what we call the Benedictus, the song of Zechariah, it's made very clear that the forgiveness of sins is the essence of salvation. Then Luke describes that woman, that fallen woman, that prostitute, that's what she was, who came behind Jesus as he reclined at a meal. She wet his feet with her tears. She anointed them. She, she covered them with kisses. And Jesus said, you know, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. And you may know that because she loves much. But he to whomsoever little has been forgiven loves little. Only Luke tells that story. It's a story of forgiveness to a fallen woman. Then Luke tells the incomparable story of the, or the parable of the prodigal son. You know the parable of the prodigal son? It's only in Luke's gospel about the boy who ran away from home and squandered his inheritance by dissolute living. And when he came to himself and decided to return in penitence to his father, what happened? He wasn't rebuffed. He wasn't rebuked. He wasn't condemned. He was welcomed with hugs and kisses and a celebration party. That's forgiveness. And Luke tells the story of the salvation of that boy. Luke records the, his version of the Great Commission <clears throat> in this way that repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations. And Luke portrays in the Acts, the second volume of his two-volume work, <clears throat> he portrays Peter and Paul, the two great apostles, proclaiming forgiveness. For example, Paul, in, his, in one of his great sermons in the Acts, through this man, Jesus, there is proclaimed to you the forgiveness of sins. Luke majors on forgiveness. It's the first component part of salvation. It still is. Forgiveness is a universal need. I need to be forgiven every day. I come back to him for forgiveness. You need to be forgiven. Have you been? Can you look God in the face knowing that he has forgiven your sins? I think of a student from Newcastle University who came to Christ. He'd been brought up in a spiritualistic home and one night in a Christian Union meeting and after it there was a great battle for his soul. This is what he wrote afterwards. That he cried to Jesus Christ in despair 
to save him. And he wrote, Then Jesus really came to me. I felt actual real love. I can't describe it. It was just pure beauty and serenity. And despite the fact I knew nothing of all the theological arguments about uh, salvation and sin and didn't even know what it meant, <clears throat> I just knew that I was forgiven. And I was unbelievably happy. Now, not everybody has the, precisely that experience, but that's an authentic experience of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. But then there's a second component of salvation. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit. Did you know that of the four evangelists, the one who shows the greatest interest in the Holy Spirit is Luke. The Holy Spirit who brings us new birth and a new life. It's Luke who portrays Jesus having uh, been filled with the Holy Spirit at his baptism, exercising his public ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit. Luke records Jesus as saying that if we who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will our Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask for him? Luke describes the coming of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost and how the Spirit-filled church went out on its mission to the world. So don't ever forget that, friends, will you? Salvation equals forgiveness plus the gift of the Spirit. That's what salvation is in the New Testament. There's two things. Forgiveness to blot out our past and the gift of the Spirit to transform our future. <clears throat> Not one without the other, but two. And Luke is anxious to keep them together. That's why he records Peter on the day of Pentecost saying, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Forgiveness and the gift of the Spirit belong together in the salvation of God. And this salvation brings joy. Luke is the evangelist of joy. Did you know that? There's more about joy in Luke's gospel than in all the others. And Luke is clear. He begins his gospel... With the word of the angel, I bring you glad tidings of great joy, which shall be to all the people. And he ends his gospel, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Luke's gospel is a joy sandwich. And in between those two references to great joy, he tells the story of Jesus, the Savior of the world. And Luke records the words of Jesus, there is joy in heaven when only one sinner repents. I bet there's going to be joy in heaven tonight over sinners repenting. And Luke tells us that each person who received salvation, like the Ethiopian eunuch, went on his way miserable. No. <laughs> Rejoicing. 
Salvation brings joy. Well, that's the first thing. The message of Luke is good news of salvation. Secondly, the message of Luke is good news of salvation in and through Jesus Christ. For he is the Savior. And when he says in Luke 3:6, all flesh will see the salvation of God, he is referring to the person to whom John the Baptist was bearing witness, namely Jesus Christ. So Luke tells the incomparable story of Jesus, how he was born of the Virgin Mary in great loneliness to be the Savior of the world, how the old man Simeon took the baby in his arms and said, My eyes have seen your salvation. What he actually saw was a baby. What he said he saw was the salvation of God. Because the salvation of God is Jesus Christ. And Luke describes how Jesus said in the story of Zacchaeus that was read earlier that he'd come to seek and to save the lost. So he forgave that prostitute. He declared to Zacchaeus this day, salvation has come to this house. And then Luke describes how Jesus died on the cross for our sins and how even on the cross he turned to the thief beside him and said, today you'll be with me in paradise. He saved the thief even while he was crucified. Then he was raised from the dead, exalted to heaven as prince and savior. And from that position of saving authority, he bestowed the Holy Spirit upon the waiting church. And still from that position of authority, at the right hand of God, he gives salvation, forgiveness, and the Holy Spirit to anybody who repents and believes. Now, because Jesus is unique in his birth, death, resurrection, and exaltation, his salvation is unique. Because in nobody else but Jesus of Nazareth has God ever become man and died for our sins and been raised from the dead and exalted to the right hand of the Father for unique events, there is no other Savior because there is nobody else with the competence to save but Jesus. That's why Luke records the saying of Peter in Acts 4.12, Salvation is found in nobody else, for there is no other name under heaven given to human beings but the name of Jesus by which we may be saved. Are you with me so far? One, the message of Luke is good news of salvation, meaning forgiveness and the Spirit with great joy. Two, the message of Luke is good news of salvation in and through the unique Jesus Christ who died, rose, and was, and was exalted to the right hand of the Father. Now thirdly, Luke's message is good news of salvation through Christ for the whole wide world. All flesh 
shall see the salvation of God. Not alas that all the world is saved or will be saved, but salvation is on offer to the world and to everybody without exception. Dante called Luke the writer of the story of the compassion of Christ. And in Luke's Gospel we see the compassion of Jesus reaching out to all sorts and conditions of men. He depicts Jesus deliberately going out of his way to honor the people society despised, to welcome the people society repudiated and ostracized. So let's quickly think of some of the categories on which Luke lays his emphasis. First, the sick and the suffering. Well, of course, all the evangelists tell Jesus' compassion to the sick and the suffering, but Dr. Luke was specially concerned about them. In 1882, a scholar called W.K. Hobart wrote an interesting book called The Medical Language of Luke, in which he tried to argue that about 400 and more of Luke's most favorite words occurred in the writings of the medical uh, authors of Greek antiquity. Now, scholars nowadays think that he greatly exaggerated, that Hobart greatly exaggerated his case. <clears throat> and it cannot be made out as he tried to do it. Nevertheless, uh, William Barclay, a, a modern commentator, has said, instinctively Luke uses medical words. He takes a doctor's interest in medical symptoms and in the diagnosis of disease. And do you know this touch when Mark says that a poor woman who was hemorrhaging had suffered much under many physicians and spent all her money and wasn't any better but rather getting worse, Luke took it as a personal affront to the medical profession. So he turned it down a little bit and all he says is she couldn't be healed by anybody. <laughs> but Jesus healed her. So Luke was concerned, or shows Jesus was concerned, for the sick and suffering. Second, for the women and children. Now, in the ancient world, both were despised. The women were rejected, and any babies that were unwanted were simply abandoned on the local rubbish dump. But Jesus treated women and children with courtesy and respect, and although all three synoptic evangelists record Jesus saying, let the little children come to me, Luke calls them babies. And Luke says Jesus put one by his side, close to him, probably put his arm round him, and Luke is the one who tells the only story that has survived from the boyhood of Jesus when he was 12. As for the women, it's Luke who tells, with great delicacy and restraint, the wonderful story of Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, and Mary, the mother of Jesus. We know their stories only from the pen of Luke. Luke tells the story of that prostitute I mentioned, of Martha and Mary, and the woman bent double, probably with arthritis, 
who couldn't stand upright, and about the group of women who supported Jesus out of their means, and who wept at the cross and watched where he was buried and went to the tomb on Easter Day and joined the Christian company before the day of Pentecost. There's a lot about women and children in Luke. But Jesus has compassion for all sorts and conditions of men. The sick and the suffering, the women and children. Next, the poor and the oppressed. Luke is especially interested in economic inequality in human society and in the distribution of wealth. It's Luke who says twice that Jesus came to preach good news to the poor. It's Luke who tells the parable of the rich fool and of Dives and Lazarus and of the unjust steward, which are all about the use of money. And it's Luke who portrays the early Jerusalem community in which there were no poor people because the wealthy people cared about them and shared their affluence with, the, with their poverty. The poor and the oppressed. Then fourthly, there were the publicans and sinners. Both of them social outcasts. The publicans because they were tax collectors in the employment of the hated Romans. And the sinners, in inverted commas, because they were uneducated men and women, ignorant of the law, ignorant of the Pharisaic traditions that tried to interpret the law, and therefore they were sinners. And they were despised, the publicans and sinners. But Luke tells us Jesus didn't despise them. The publicans and sinners, Luke says in chapter 15, gathered round him to listen to him. And he told the parables of the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost boy, only in Luke, in order to show the great love that God has for the alienated and the lost. So it's Luke who tells the conversion of Zacchaeus. It was read to us. And he was a tax collector. And it's Luke who tells the parable of the Pharisee and the publican in which the publican was justified and the Pharisee went to hell. Jesus was the friend of publicans and sinners. Jesus was void of all social snobbery. Jesus was full of compassion for those whom society despised. Luke tells us that. And then fifthly, the other category is the Samaritans and the Gentiles. We take the Samaritans first. They were a hybrid race, you know, half Jew, half Gentile, and they were descended from the mixed population in Israel after the Assyrians in the 8th century BC populated Israel with pagans, Gentiles. So the mixed race developed, and the Jews despised the Samaritans for a, a number of reasons. But Jesus didn't, and Luke tells us so. Jesus tells us how, Luke tells us how Jesus rebuked James and John because they wanted to call fire down from heaven on a Samaritan city. Jesus told them that they didn't know to what spirit they belonged. It's Luke who tells us that it's of the leprosy victims 
who were healed, the only one who came back and thanked Jesus was a Samaritan. It's Luke who tells us that the hero of the parable about what happened on the Jericho road was a Samaritan. And a Samaritan did to a Jew what no Jew would ever have dreamed of doing to a Samaritan. Jesus loved the Samaritans, Luke says, and he loved the Gentiles too. I wonder if you know this. This to me is a very wonderful thing. At the beginning of each of Luke's two volumes on the origins of Christianity, his Gospel and the Acts, near the beginning of each, there is a signpost verse that points the direction in which he is going to go. The one near the beginning of Luke is our text tonight, Luke 3.6, All flesh will see the salvation of God. And the one near the beginning of Acts is Acts 2.17, when Peter quotes Joel, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. All flesh will see the salvation of God. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. At the beginning of both volumes, Luke indicates what his concern is for all humanity. There are no disabilities in race, sex, class, age. They are not disabilities in the way of receiving salvation. Salvation is offered to everybody, if only they will repent and believe. Well, let me recapitulate and then have a few more moments in which to conclude. I've tried to show that Luke's message is the good news of salvation equals forgiveness plus the Spirit. Second, it's good news of salvation through Christ, whose birth, death, resurrection, and exaltation were unique, so that his salvation is unique. Nobody's qualified to save but Jesus only. And thirdly, it's good news of salvation through Christ for all flesh, irrespective of everything else. Nobody is excluded from the salvation of God. Now, as we conclude, I very much pray that we may learn these important lessons about the universality of the offer of salvation. One, If Jesus is the Savior of the world, that includes me and you. There is nobody here tonight who is excluded from the offer of salvation. And Luke tells his story in such a way as to address the reader directly. For example, at the beginning of the Gospel, the angel says, I bring you Glad tidings of great joy unto you is born in the city of David a Savior. And as we read it, the you becomes we. We are that you for whom the Savior has been born. Or again, in uh, Acts 2, I've already quoted it, the sermon of Peter. Repent, be baptized, every one of you. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children, etc. Who is that you? Well, it's we. The second person becomes the first person. As we read what Luke deliberately records, he records it in such a way as to address his readers directly. 
He says to his reader, you dear reader, is the one I'm talking to. And all flesh includes you and me. But how skillfully we excuse and exclude ourselves from that offer. There are some doing it now, even as I'm talking. You're trying to wriggle out of it, as if the offer doesn't include you. I want to tell you there's nobody in church tonight so dissolute, so depraved, that Jesus Christ cannot save you. There's nobody in church tonight with such crippling inferiority feelings that you have the liberty to say he doesn't love me. He does. You're included. There's nobody here so despised and exploited and oppressed by society that Jesus Christ doesn't respect you. He respects you all the more because other people may despise you. And to turn it the other way around, there is nobody here so self-righteous and so self-important and so self-satisfied and priggish that you don't need Jesus. You do. So the salvation of God is not for any elitist group, the religious or the irreligious or the weak or the strong or the good or the bad, or the educated or the uneducated, it's for everybody. All flesh shall see the salvation of God. Friend, wriggler, it includes you. Then the second learn is, the lesson to learn is this. If Jesus is the Savior of the world, it includes not only us, but everybody else as well. So we cannot enjoy a monopoly of salvation. If you've received salvation from Jesus Christ by repentance and faith, then you have a responsibility, as I have too, to share the good news of salvation with your friends and neighbors and uh, relatives and others. For yet again, I'm afraid I have to say, there are many of us who are shamefully skillful at disqualifying and disenfranchising from the gospel the people we don't happen to like. Either we have a color prejudice, shame on us, or we're anti-Semitic, shame on us, or we're color conscious, beastly snobs, or we have a phobia against foreigners, homosexual people, AIDS victims. Jesus has no phobia against AIDS victims, nor against homosexual people, nor against anybody else that we would like to disenfranchise. There are no untouchables in the sight of Jesus Christ. You know when the prostitute came to Jesus, well let me put it the other way around, when a prostitute approached a Pharisee, he would shrink away from her in horror. 
He wouldn't want to be contaminated by a woman like that. But when a prostitute came behind Jesus and covered his feet with kisses, wiped them with her hair, Jesus didn't shrink from her. He didn't shrink from anybody. He wouldn't shrink from an AIDS victim, you may be sure. He accepted her love and he forgave her sin. And I think that this is what I want you to take away. This is what Luke is saying to us tonight. We are not untouchables. If you think God wouldn't touch you, and nor is anybody else, on the contrary, in and through Jesus Christ, God is stooped from heaven to reach out and touch us. There is no untouchable to the love of God. And by his touch, we can be made whole. Praise God. Let us pray. Take up in your thoughts the word untouchable. Do you think you are untouchable by Christ? Then he stretches forth his hand tonight to touch you. Or do you have a phobia that you think other people are untouchable? Then in prayer, stretch out your hand in love to touch them. Nobody untouchable to the love of Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you very much for Luke's portrait of Jesus. That we have seen Jesus tonight as the man of compassion, reaching out to touch people in their need, whoever they may be. We want to pray that you will touch us and through us touch others. We ask it for the glory of your great name. Amen. You've been listening to John Stott. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.